Join us in a world where you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Sit back as we discuss hard-won lessons from the best and brightest that the personal defense and competition shooting industry has to offer. Let us help you help yourself, no matter where you are in your personal path. Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. Now here's your host, John Johnston. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. I'm your host, John Johnson. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at BallisticRadio.com. Get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, other things at Facebook.com slash Ballistic Radio. And remember, if you're into doing stuff for the grams, I do stuff for the grams. That would be Instagram for those of you who are not fellow cool kids. Uh, you can follow me at Ballistic J, the letter J. So, hey, Joe. What is up? <laughs> I just, I don't know why, but that made me think of the old Budweiser commercial with the frogs. Uh, remember? I remember those. Yeah. You know. Oh, well. Hey, you want to hear a commercial that doesn't have a frog in it? I would love to. Hey, this segment brought to you by Lucky Gunner and Federal Premium Ammunition. That was a really horrible segue. I'm sorry, everyone. Whether there was a firefight or you do, in fact, want to worry about that little guy, you need more ammo. And when it's time to restock, you can't beat Federal Premium Ammunition at LuckyGunner.com. With a shipping department that's always moving at 88 miles per hour. If I order a case of American Eagle from Lucky Gunner on a Thursday, it's at my doorstep ready to shoot before the weekend starts. Head to LuckyGunner.com today to check out their in-stock lineup of Federal Premium Ammunition. And remember, unless you're on fire or drowning or, I don't know, definitely not carrying a 1911 because you won't have too much ammo then. Zing! Uh, (laughs) You can never really have too much ammo. And that segues into today's guest. Joining us, Jason Burton. Hey. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. That was that was kind of like a I was making fun of something that people make fun of 1911s for, but <laughs> I don't actually necessarily think it's as big of a deal as other people do, but maybe we'll talk about that today. Yeah, anyway, I got a little giggle out of me. It was a good joke. I like it. Okay. Like it. it was it was on the fly. So if I yeah. had more time, I could have done better. But uh for those that don't know, this is your your first appearance on the show. Um and we've talked about this for a little while, and I'm glad you could uh, join us today. But who are you, and what do you do? Well, my name is uh, Jason Burton, and I own and operate a company called Heirloom Precision, where I spend my days, nights, weekends, evening hours, holidays, and any free time building 1911s. Nice. Um, and not just any 1911s, but but pretty cool 1911s. I appreciate that. I try. I try. Pretty cool. Yeah, I, I, uh, to the best of my ability, every everything uh, that I do is is kind of, uh, I guess, what we would term bespoke in yeah. the sense that um, people are coming to me to have that the gun built that they just simply can't buy anywhere else. They, it, it's it's a lot like having. Um, I make this analogy a lot. It's a lot like having a suit tailored to you. You know, you can go to a lot of stores and buy a really fantastic suit. You're going to look great in it. It's going to fit perfect. But then there are still those places that will make a suit for you the way you want it, 
down to, you know, literally fitting every component of it to the way you'd like it to fit. And that is sort of analogous to what I do on 1911s. Nice. How'd you get into that, man? Uh, I was super lucky. Um, I, uh, I owned a, I was brought up in a house with guns, which was probably the first best thing that could have happened. Uh, my dad was a, a very mechanical guy, naturally. He liked English sports cars and guns and um, grew up shooting. Uh, when I turned 21, you know, I always had realized the utility of a handgun. I mean, I, that, I recognized that since a very early age. And when I turned 21, you know, whereas I wasn't necessarily as excited to be able to go out and, and legally drink at that point, you notice I threw the legally component in there. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, but um, I was excited to get my concealed pistol license. So turned 21. I was living in Washington State at the time. Go get my concealed pistol license. And from there, it was a, a process of figuring out what is the gun I want to carry. I think I did the thing that a lot of people do, which is to kind of go on that journey of, all right, I'm going to try this gun. Well, I like this about it, but I don't like this about it. And I, I found the 1911, I guess, is kind of the way it goes. I, and, um, you know, I, I, did, I spent my time for the first few years of carrying a gun. Uh, and I carried a gun basically every day of my life since I was 21. I mean, I, I, and I, you know, I had a Glock 19s, and I went to SIGs, and I tried Smith & Wessons and, and all that stuff. But when I found the 1911, it really ignited something. I loved the idea of the platform in the sense that it was skinny, you know, it's flat, it's easy to conceal, um, it shot a big bullet, um, and there was something just sexy about it. I think the f first thing that really attracted me to it at a young age, I remember I was like, man, that gun's cocked. You got to shoot that gun like that? Yeah. It's pretty awesome, right? Right. So from there, I dove headlong into 1911s. I, I made the journey up from production guns to semi-custom guns to custom guns. And when I discovered custom guns, that made me want to figure out how I could do work on the pistols. Right. And I got an opportunity to move to Arizona to, uh, to just literally, again, dive, dive even deeper into the 1911 thing. And I, I did it. I took the opportunity. I really kind of didn't know what I was doing at the time, in all honesty. I had tinkered with guns for a few years before that, but I had no machining background. Um, and I dove headlong, and 14 years later, here I am. Sort of, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, no, you're here. I uh, well, at least I believe you to not be a figment of my imagination. So I, <laughs> I, I will, I will confirm your existence at least from my perspective, sir. Um, I guess. What do you think? Some of the, uh, and we could have a we could have a long conversation about the viability of the guns um, themselves these days. But uh, and maybe we'll do that later. But what are some of the misconceptions do you think that are sort of attendant with the the nineteen eleven, which is you know arguably one of the huh, one of the more famous designs uh, from a man who had quite a, a large impact on just guns in general? You know, you bet. Yeah, um, I think the two biggest misconceptions that I hear. Um, and this is this is aside from going into things about about practical use like carrying the gun or sure. anything like that. 
two biggest misconceptions are they're fragile and they don't work. Mm -hmm. And the second one of those, the don't working component, those those kind of go hand in hand a little bit. You know, uh, the gun is obviously over 100 years old. And in that time frame, a lot of them have been made and not some as good as others. I mean, that's just the that's just being frank about it. Sure. And I think the reputation that the gun got as being either fragile and or unreliable comes from more or less anomalies. It's a really simple machine. Um, you know, if you think about it, and I contrast it to revolvers a lot of the time, this all this gun's got to do is move in a straight line. That's really it. Yeah. And even though the premises by which things are built on are complex compared to what we what people, and I'm using air quotes now, would talk about modern guns, right, or modern designs, whatever that might be, um, the gun is really simple from a mechanical standpoint, um, unlike a revolver, as an example. And I'm a revolver guy. I love revolvers, not, not disparaging to them. But, um, you know, there's a lot of timing in a revolver yeah. that, although there is timing in a 1911, it's not nearly as complex from the standpoint of having to make something turn while something cams to the rear and falls. 1911's just got to operate in a straight line. But as we move further down the road from what we would call guns that operate uh, or guns that are manufactured by, to the print, um, you get tolerance, you get deviation, and those things will impact reliability and durability. Well, um, yeah, well so, I mean... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say we've got to go to break. So, and I kind of, I kind of have some a couple of different questions to ask. Uh, but right now, we're talking with Jason Burton from Heirloom Precision. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. A legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the EDCX-9, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match-grade accuracy, superior ergonomics, and concealability, with modern service pistol capacity and reliability at www.wilsoncombat.com. Um, so before the break, uh, or right before the break, we were sort of talking about some of the misconceptions that people have on the 1911. And you were drawing the comparison between the timing involved in a revolver, uh, which, you know, has a, has a cartridge rotating in line with a, a you know, a barrel, uh, while a hammer falls and like, it doesn't take much for that to get out of whack in a way that is <laughs> immediately noticeable. Uh, yep. whereas the 1911 for the most part just has to move in a straight line. Yep. Um, yep. let me ask you this too. It kind of seems like that. So the 1911 was the, the sidearm of the military for a very long time. Um, and it seems like a lot of people's opinion on the gun itself is based off of guns that were literally not touched for that entire time and barely maintained for that entire yeah. time, which kind of reminds me of the Beretta. You know, a lot of people have these 
opinions on the Beretta, uh, you know, 92 series that are based off of, once again, armory guns that maybe weren't maintained, were maybe using magazines that were never, ever serviced, period. How, how much of that do you think sort of plays a role here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it, you know, notice that we're seeing, I, I don't know if I'd call it a resurgence but we're, or a revival or whatever, but we're seeing even greater interest in the Beretta right now once again. Sure. You know? um, yeah, absolutely. I think that that plays a part into it. Um, I think that the guns were not as well-equipped the original guns, so GI guns, as, you know, as as we have now. And again, I think as things got, um, I think as guns got manufactured on worn out tooling, and they got lack of, main, of proper maintenance. Okay, uh, and by proper maintenance, I also mean like, you know, from magazine component as an example. You know, the the magazine is uh, like in any auto pistol, the magazine is supremely important. Okay, same thing with the 1911. You start feeding it odd ammo out of odd magazines, and all of a sudden, it's like putting the wrong gas in your car. Um, so absolutely. I also think the guns were harder to shoot. You know, tiny little sights, high-visibility sights on those GI guns were kind of like a, what, whoever heard of that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of the that perception was born out of uh, a limited number or a, a limited amount of experience by a lot of people so the rumor mill or the i experienced it once and it wasn't good so the whole thing must be bad kind of idea uh, which really doesn't hold true to the platform because when they're done correctly they have they absolutely have the ability when done correctly with proper ammo and proper magazines to be supremely reliable and supremely accurate guns over a very long round count on top of that. Right. Um, you know, so I, I'm a 1911 fan, um, and I play with them pretty regularly. You know, Wilson Combat is a sponsor of mine, and they have always been incredibly good to me, um, you know, and have pretty much been a sponsor since the very early days of the show. So, I mean... In case people are listening and, and want me to disclose bias, that should be a pretty obvious bias. But in case it's not, um, you know, but like I, I've had multiple iterations of their guns go well over, um, you know, 15,000 rounds uh, with minimal to no maintenance and been abs- absolutely fine. Yep. And at in my experience, uh, I'm not saying that Wilson Combat's the only people that make a good gun. They're certainly not. Uh, I know for a fact that you make a good gun, for instance. But, like, a well-made gun will perform exceedingly uh, more than most people think it will, you know? Yep, without a doubt. And, and you picked a great example there with the Wilsons. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of Wilson Combat guns um, because... I think, especially at their price point, the end consumer is able to get a product that does exactly what you described. It will work with a minimal amount of maintenance. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it really is a testament to the design, but the design has certain requirements. And the requirement that is fulfilled when you get a gun like a Wilson, it, you know, something that everybody always goes, well, why do they cost so much money? Well, they cost so much money because somebody paid attention to putting the gun together 
in a way that is going to allow you to shoot the maximum number of rounds with the minimum amount of maintenance. And that is, you know, we can talk about parts quality, manufacturing processes, things like that. Those absolutely play in on higher-end guns. But what you really are paying for is you're paying for a knowledgeable and skilled hand that has an experience base to draw from when it comes to putting the gun together for actual shooting. Right. Um, And they do a fantastic job of that flat out. Well, and that's, yeah. And the other thing too, and you sort of, I don't know if you touched on it or not, but it was something that occurred to me. Um, You, you mentioned magazines too, and I don't, I don't know that people necessarily appreciate how recent a development it is to have a mass produced magazine that doesn't need to be tuned. That is reliable. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of Wilson combat, you know what, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, do you, do you think that people sort of have lost sight of that just because, I mean, we're, we're kind of spoiled that way now, aren't we? Oh, we're totally spoiled. And, and, with specific regard to the 1911, think about it this way, too. For a long time, okay, before Wilson Combat, so post-Second World War, before Wilson comes out with their Model 47 magazine, okay, which I think is probably the best magazine ever made for the 1911, for, mm-hmm. 40, for a 45 ACP government model, okay? Sure. You would go to a gun shop or a gun show, and you would just buy a magazine. Now, ma- that magazine might have been made by who knows who on what tooling to what print, okay? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people would buy these magazines and they would stick bullets in magazines, stick magazine and gun, try to make gun work, and gun don't work, right? So yeah. they all of a sudden, the you know, well, the gun just must not work because these magazines couldn't possibly, these gun show magazines I bought for $3.50 a piece couldn't possibly be the clue here, right? Yeah. Whereas that doesn't exist in other platforms, you know? Even until recently, nobody made a Glock magazine except Glock, as an example. You know, even when Smith & Wesson for their, you know, 59, 69 series guns, you know, the aftermarket magazines were typically made by the OEM that made the magazines for Smith & Wesson. Sure. And so we've had this thing going on in the 1911 that maybe has spoiled people's idea of it, at least for, for in the olden days, whereas, to get to your point, right now – you and I are spoiled in the sense that we don't that that research has all been done for us. The problem's all been solved for us. It's very easy to get a gun that works now. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it, it's funny too. But like, even if you go to, you know, rifles in a, as an example, right? Uh, and you look at a company like Magpul that originally started out making a little doohickey to get a magazine out of yeah. a, a carrier, and then suddenly has built this empire on the back of a reliable AR-15 magazine. Yep. Um, and like people really don't appreciate like the advancement that that represents. Um, well, you know, and yeah. so hold that thought cause we have to yeah. go to break. Uh, and then and I'm sorry to do that to you. Uh, but we're, we're talking with Jason Burton from heirloom precision. You're listening to ballistic radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. 
This segment brought to you by BigTexOutdoors.com. BigTexOutdoors.com is the best place for you to find all your everyday carry needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the lumens from Surefire at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and need an RMR on your carry gun now? Well, BigTexOutdoors.com has those. Glock accessories? Yes! Fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, BigTexOutdoors.com has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike, everybody likes Ike, and you'll like Ike too. Visit BigTexOutdoors.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. I interrupted you before the break, and I am I am so sorry. Uh, we were talking about uh, Magpul making an AR-15 magazine that was reliable. Uh, yeah. And go. Yep. So you brought up a really good point there, which is that the ability now for shooters to get reliable components for their guns and reliable guns has made kind of life easier to be a shooter. But the thing I see, too, and this also might you know, kind of be one of the things that sways people away from wanting to dive into 1911s, combined with the perception that, like I said, they either don't work or they're not durable, is that shooters now don't have to suffer things that don't work. If you get something that doesn't work, you either return it to the manufacturer and they send you a new one, whether it's a magazine, something like that, uh, or they just don't they just dismiss the gun entirely, just a summarial dismissal of the platform, right? And I think that has led to, going back to your first question, what has maybe skewed people's idea about, you know, misconceptions about the gun, so on and so forth. And again, I give a lot of credit to Bill Wilson uh, for doing what he's done, not only from a manufacturing and a company standpoint, but he's done a lot of things incrementally that have helped combat that, like producing a magazine that, by and large, works in 99.9% of the guns out there. And when the magazine doesn't work, he's got you know he, he's got enough uh, he's got infrastructure behind him to where the consumer can go. Well, maybe it's the magazine. They send the magazine back, and Wilson sends them a brand new magazine. Yeah, that is helping to those even those little tiny things help make it easier for people to be a 1911 shooter. Provided everything else is equal, the gun works, all that other stuff. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I I see how that can skew people's idea, the the idea that well, if it doesn't work, I'm just going to get rid of it. Or, and I had a buddy who had one, and you know, I don't want to dive into the world because my buddy's gun didn't work or whatever. Right. But it's kind of the thing we've been fighting as 1911 guys uh, since you know my whole life, right? Yeah. But uh, you know, that's part of the fun too. Well, so it's one of those things, and I don't want, I don't want people to think that like. So the purpose of this for me is I'm not telling anyone they need to go carry a 1911. Um, you know, I'm I'm not carrying one right now, um, and I'm not saying that if if people have issues with the 1911 uh, from a, you know, from whatever standpoint, whether it's you know weight or manual of arms or whatever, okay, sure. But if we're going to have a conversation about it, I would like for the conversation to be based off of factual information. And a lot of the things that get thrown around are just not true. Um, and, and it's kind of, you're sort of, you've mentioned the, the, the spec or as they get further away from the design. But like, um, I know 100% for a fact that a 1911 that is built correctly is an incredibly reliable, incredibly accurate gun. Just like a Glock that is built correctly is a is a pretty accurate, incredibly reliable gun. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. 
I will say this: the Gen fives are surprisingly accurate. Um, their yeah. their new barrels are cool. But the point that I make bringing up the Glocks is, if a Glock's not built right, it's none of those things. Just like if a 1911 is not built right, it's none of those things. Just like if anything else is not built correctly, it is not any of those things. That is not an issue that is um, isolated to 1911s. That's an issue with every mechanical thing. If it's not built right, it doesn't work well, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the things that the 1911 industry has been good at sorting out. And at the same time, We've also, uh, I, we, like the greater 1911 industry in general, has maybe added to the perception. Because we've also asked this gun to do things that are out of what was the original intent, right? So as an example, 10-millimeter um, 1911s, right? I mean, the gun was never designed around cha- that, that chambering. But we can make the gun work and do it. 9 by 23 1911s. It was never designed to shoot a 923, but we can make the gun do it, and it can be totally reliable. But everything in the gun is related to everything else. There is hardly a part on that gun that if you modify it will not affect another part or the operation of another part in some way. Right. And I think a lot of times people get down a path of, well, I'm going to do this one thing to my gun without being able to see the whole picture. It's kind of like, you know, the forest through the trees kind of idea. I'm going to cut this one tree down and not think about the rest of the forest. And it's like, no, even a little tiny thing like a guy who says, well, I don't like the way my barrel bushing fits. So, you know, through manufacturing technology, we have the ability now for somebody to take a couple of measurements on their gun, get on the Internet, and order a new barrel bushing that has tighter tolerances. But what is that doing to the rest of the gun? And what is that doing to the operational cycle of the gun? The 1911 is sort of a tinkerer's gun at the same time as it's an enthusiast, or some people call it an expert's gun, whatever. Um, I don't know about any of that, but I'm just saying that it's the ability for people to change parts in the gun readily, and the technology basically encouraging that also has to be taken as a total, you know, you got to look at the bigger picture there. All right, if I'm going to do this, what's the potential downside, or what else, is the, what else am I potentially affecting in the gun? Well, and it's kind of like, um, I see that with, I mean, you see that with Glocks a lot too. And it's, it's kind sure. of, it's kind of interesting to me because I feel like in the next 50 years, the Glock will have really taken on the role that the 1911s sort of exist in these days, as far as something new and different will have come along and people will be like, why are you still, you know, you know what I mean? I can almost yeah. envision that. Yeah, them all the old guys shoot Glocks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is weird, but um, yeah. if you mess with them enough, they stop working. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and yeah. So, is there any? I mean, what is the recipe for success with a 1911? I guess if people are listening to this, what are just some things that that you're like, okay, this this tends to make them work all right, and this tends to make them not work so good or not without a lot of extra effort? Yeah. um, First and foremost, quality ammunition and quality magazines. And you'd almost think that should go without saying, but it still is one of those things where I see people on the range trying to make a gun work that just doesn't want to work with ammo that's either not to spec or magazines that aren't to spec. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we get those two things out of the way, 
I kind of use this one a lot. And I tell people, I say, if you want, especially for guys who are getting into 1911s, I'll tell them, buy a 5-inch 45 ACP government model for your first thing. Don't Don't try to go for something that might take extra effort or more effort than that in, if this is your first foray into 1911s. You're saying I don't, want, I don't want a double stack, three and a half inch, uh, 357 SIG? That's a no, bad place to start? No, I'm saying that that may not be the best platform to, on, on which to dive in from. Yeah, no. Okay. Um, and inside that Shots. gun, things that are key components, um, the extractor plays a big part in how the gun operates. And an extractor that is properly set up in the gun will last a really, really long time, so long as it's got proper geometry proper tension. Um, same thing with the feed ramp and the barrel throat. Uh, the relationship of those to the magazine is, is very important uh, in terms of feeding the gun. And if they're not set up correctly, you'll start to see maybe not necessarily failures to feed all the time, but you might see an anomaly here. Oh, like it just didn't do it with this magazine. And then of course we start to try to narrow some things down, but given proper geometry within those things and those if I had to say that there are key things that are make the 1911 work, those two things, you know, barrel throat, feed ramp geometry, extractor geometry, are probably the most important components in the entire gun in terms of getting the gun to work all the time. Um, and then for buyers, I would say first thing you have to do is determine how much money you're willing to spend on the gun because you can buy a gun for as little as probably $500 all the way up to sky is absolutely the limit on yep. the price of a gun. And being able to define that will help you pick or help the prospective buyer pick the best gun for them to start getting into the platform. Well, so, and I've got a question, but we've got to go to break. So right now we're talking okay. with Jason Burton from Heirloom Precision. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. So we're talking with Jason Burton from Heirloom Precision, and you sort of brought something up at the very end, and that was the consumer needs to determine how much money they're willing to spend. Um, is there a, a cost of entry for what you would consider a baseline good gun? And if so, what is that dollar amount? And then tangential to that would be, what are we defining as good? Okay, yeah. Um, there, There is. I would say that the guns that I see that are typically the best, we'll call it entry level, are around $1,000. Around $1,000. Okay? Sure. Doesn't mean that one might not be a little bit less or a little bit more, but a, around there. Um, examples of this would be the current Colt products are all pretty fantastic. They're really good. They're building the best guns they've built probably in the history of the company. Um, uh, same thing with Springfield Armory. Guns I like from Springfield as an example, I think their range officer series um, is a really good price point for people to get into the guns. The LB operator, which they still make, is probably the sweet spot. You know, I think that gun is like $1,250 or something brand new, and it comes with a lot of the features people want which at a price that most people are willing to spend on 1911, and that then is kind of the sweet spot. Um, and 
they all have the correct things done correctly to them. They're typically not deviating real far from the platform. Most of those I mentioned are going to be 5-inch government models and 45 ACP, and they get those key component right, components right, like feed ramp dimensions and barrel throats and extractors and things like that. Um, from there, if we go up in price point, if we move, if we if we just double it, if we go from maybe the $1,215 range to doubling it, Springfield Pro Models um, and Wilson Combats is, kind of falls into that range. I think a CQB now is probably in the $3,500-ish range. That is so much gun for $3,500. People, I, it, it's really hard for me to be able to communicate it effectively to people because the efforts it takes for me, as an example, to take a base gun and turn it into something like that, um, like the, you can't have it for 3500 bucks. So yeah. that's a really great price point for a really great gun. It really is. Well, and so I'm looking just because I was curious. CQB right now, the base price on those is 2865 Yeah. 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 Modern tech manufacturing technology has allowed people to get a gun that good at that price point. I mean, we are really living in an era in an era where it is hard to buy a bad gun. You kind of got to work to buy a bad 1911 now. I mean, you can do it, but... Uh, you can. Yep. Yeah. I've seen some weird stuff. So where does it go from there, then? Um, from there, you know, from the semi-custom on up, you get into the kind of the custom bespoke world where a lot of what people are buying, like when people come to me as an example, a lot of what people are buying isn't necessarily a thing that they cannot get on another gun, but they're a lot. They're buying my style, my personality, and the interaction with me. Um, and this isn't unique to me. There are lots of guys in my segment of the industry who are building really, really great guns. Sure. But that's kind of the next tier as we go from semi-custom guns, uh, where parts and 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 features are sort of packaged together, to a gun where the consumer, the client is really specking out the things that they want in great, great detail. And then from there, it's just a matter of how much detail do you want. So what you're saying is uh, it can cost a lot. Yeah, it can. I mean, you know, it's, uh, yes, absolutely, because it's just, for me, I just, in, in my business, I just look at everything as a function of time. Right. How much time is it going to take me to do the thing that the client wants me to do? And you know, again, somebody once asked me, he's like, well, what am I going to get from a gun of yours, as an example, to between a Wilson CQB? And I said, well, um, does your CQB shoot good? He says, yeah. I said, shoot where it looks. Yep. Works reliably. Yep. Feels good in your hand. Yep. It's got a good trigger. Yep. Sights you like. Yep. You're not going to get anything. Huh. Are you not? I mean, like, I, I don't, and I don't, there's no, you know, at, the, at that level and the ability for them, Wilson Combat, to produce a gun that is that good at that price point from a shooting perspective, as long as the gun checks all those boxes, a guy that goes, you know, that comes to me, he's not going to get, you know, if a gun's reliable and it shoots accurately, can I make it more accurate? Yeah, maybe. Can I make it more reliable? Well, if the gun already works, it's hard to make it work more right you know, right so more than 100 percent, i'll try but um you know but again at that upper tier what they're really getting is the ability to have a thing built for them and nobody else it's really the one-off kind of thing well and 
If you so, I'll say this right now because there are going to be a lot of people that listen to that and go, "Well, why the hell would you do that?" And yeah, you're right, yeah. you're not the customer then, and that's fine, yeah. and that's yep. fine. But there are going to be other people that are like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I want that." That's the customer, yep. um, yeah. and you know, yeah, it, it takes all kinds. Um, it does. Yeah. Is, is there any gun that you? Uh, haven't gotten to build that you'd want to build just like a combination of things that no one has like, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, you know what I mean though? I do. I actually do. I, I take a lot of inspiration from um, gunsmiths and shops that came before me. So I've had some unique opportunities to build what I would call tribute guns. Um, I've done quite a few guns that are styled after Packmire combat specials, as an example, where I'm doing things the way I do them, but I'm kind of making the gun a throwback stylistically. And, and so at this point in my career, I get to do a lot of that right now. People come to me and they want a gun that is a, a that is reminiscent or to tribute to, or a throwback to another maker. So as an example, I just built a client, a gun that was styled like a 90s Heine gun, uh, a gun built by Richard Heine in the 90s. Now, it's built the way I build the gun, but it's a tribute to Heine's style. And so there are some makers that I have yet to be able to you know, emulate, so to speak, but mm-hmm. do things mechanically the way I want to do them. I've I've yet to build my Swenson tribute gun, uh, tribute to Armin Swenson, who was one of the real early pioneers in the custom 1911 industry. And I would love to build a Devel style 1911, something that looks like the cut-up Devel 39s, but in a 1911 platform. Um, and th- those are things that really interest me because they kind of allow me to spread my wings a little bit and to really take an artistic approach to building the gun, not just a mechanical one. Well, I'd be curious to see what um, what some of those guys would have done if, like, you, t- you take something like a Packmeyer, right, and yep. and you plop him down in 2019, uh, and here's here's some of this here's some of the trends. How would you incorporate that? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I'd hey, love to see that. Here's an RMR. Have yeah. at it. Yeah, uh, that would be yeah. cool. You know, yep. or. Well, and I think, you know, um, you know, or Magwells, as an example. I mean, just if you look at how Magwells have evolved over the years, mm-hmm. um, or in Beaver Tales, the same thing. I would love to see what those guys would do, um, taking it from what is we kind of term a more traditional custom 1911 look, where, you know, a lot of the Swenson guns, most of the Swenson guns, you know, they didn't have Beaver Tails on them or anything like that. You know, would he be using beaver tails now? Well, I think he would. I think he'd still be looking for, you know, the newest technology to make the gun as shootable as possible. Because the great thing about how when this segment, you know, my segment of the industry started, is that it was all about making the gun more usable for the guys that realized how good of a tool the 1911 was. And they have now allowed guys working in this era, guys that are my contemporaries, to even expand further on just the tool aspect of the gun to something that can be true metal art. Um, and so I would love to see where those guys would have gone with the technology we have now and the parts availability and you know 
all of that stuff. Nice. Man, we're at the end of the show. Uh, it went super quick. Um, I guess my first question would be, are your books even open right now? And if so, no. well, I was going to say if so, <laughs> how do people do that? But um, They're not. I'm going to work through what I have here right now until I get to a point where I'm comfortable taking on more work just so I don't just so I don't get work piled on and, and I don't want my wife to hate me any more than she does. Well, that's probably a good goal in life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, if you, if you guys want to go look at the stuff that you can't actually order right now, um, <laughs> heirloom precision, um, Jason, thanks so much, man, for taking time out of your day. I really, really appreciate it. You certainly didn't need to, um, doesn't really benefit you any to come and do this for, for everyone. So I, I really appreciate you doing it. My, my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no worries, man. I will uh, I will talk to you soon. So Thank you. Yep. Hey, guys, make sure you check out our website, BallisticRadio.com. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. Keep leaving those five-star review on iTunes. really helps us out, and we appreciate it a lot. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe. See you next week. <laughs>